0: All right, so tonight we'll be in Colossians 4, finishing up the book, looking at verses 7 through 18. But before we get there, I want you guys to start off tonight by thinking about what is your favorite animal. Okay, take a moment and think about that. What is your favorite animal? Get it in your head, maybe share it with your neighbor. What's your favorite animal? Okay, now statistically speaking... Uh, There are a few animals that typically top people's list when it comes to their favorite. If you had to guess, what animal do you think is statistically the most common favorite animal listed by people? What do you guys think? Dog, cat, who whoever said cat? No, that didn't even make the top 10. Believe it or not, it's a tiger. It's a tiger. 21% of respondents said that tigers are their favorite animal. Now, to be honest, I don't know if that statistic was taken before or after Tiger King, so that might have you know, influenced it one way or the other, but tiger was 21%, followed closely by dogs at 20%, dolphins at 13%, and then rounding out the top 10 were horses, lions, Snakes, Ooh, you're disgusting if a snake is your favorite. Elephants, chimps, orangutans, and whales. That is like a weird top 10. So maybe your favorite animal made the top 10, maybe it didn't, however, I am fairly confident that the animal I want to talk about tonight in our opener probably didn't crack anybody's top 10 list. Did anyone choose Canadian geese as their favorite animal? No one? Oh, come on! Canadian geese! You know, the animals, that the little birds that poop everywhere, and they're always angrily charging at you when you shank a ball and hit it over towards the water hazard on a hole. Not that I would ever, you know, have any of those problems golfing, but talk to Ben Streckard afterwards. He can explain what that's like. Now, confessedly, Canadian geese are not the most exciting or attractive or exotic animals in the animal kingdom. In fact, they're kind of bland and boring and obnoxious. However, they're actually pretty fascinating when you study uh, study them and they've been able to produce some pretty interesting insights. Each year, Canadian geese migrate 3,000 miles from the northernmost parts of Canada to the southernmost parts of the United States. And scientists have spent a lot of considerable time studying their migration patterns, and they've walked away with some really neat lessons about teamwork and what teamwork is required for an effective migration season for Canadian geese. Now, as strange as it sounds, Canadian geese reveal four aspects of what effective teamwork looks like. I know this sounds weird, but stick with me, okay? Here's the first one. Geese are able to fly further because they fly further together. What shape do geese always fly in? No, it's a K. No, I'm just kidding, it's a V. Yeah, they fly in a V, right? The flying V formation. Why do they do that? Well, it's because this shape makes them far more aerodynamic. As they flap their wings, it provides additional lift and reduces the wind uh, pressure for the next geese that's behind the lead ones. And by flying in a V formation, a lot of scientists estimate that a flock of geese is able to fly 70% further than if a goose was able, was going to fly the same route on their own. They can almost go twice as far because they fly together. They wouldn't be able to complete the journey if they did it alone. So that's the first lesson. They go further because they go together. Here's the second lesson. Geese take turns in leadership positions. When you're flying in the V formation, everyone benefits from it other than the leader. The leader of the V gets all of the wind, all of the pressure, all of the tiring aspects on Uh, him or her front and center and after a while the goose who's in the front will rotate out of the front the entire formation will switch around they'll go to the back so they can have the easy spot and another goose will take the brunt they share the load of the most difficult work and they rotate the leadership position so that no one gets tired believe it or not they do that here's the third lesson we can learn geese support each other uh, during tough times So scientists have documented that when one particular goose falls ill or gets sick or is injured and it falls out of formation, one or two other geese always fall out of formation with it, allowing it to benefit from uh, kind of the air current and everything around them so that it can eventually get back into formation. On a long migration pattern, they never leave a goose by itself. They make sure that everyone has a partner to get to the end. And then here's a fourth lesson, Uh, geese encourage each other to keep going. Now that's probably the strangest one, but a lot of scientists speculate that the obnoxious honking that geese always make while they're flying, you know, constantly, that's purposeful. It's a way for them to check, uh, cheer on progress, and to motivate the entire group of geese to keep moving forward. It's how they communicate and encourage the team. I mean, super corny, but who knew there was so much to learn from geese? I mean, they're like the most obnoxious, ugly animals, yet they have some profound lessons about what effective teamwork looks like. And a lot of those lessons transfer right over to spiritual teamwork in our spiritual communities as well. Because similar to geese, we are all on a lifelong migration pattern. I mean, Scripture makes it clear. We are strangers, exiles, and sojourners in this world. We are headed for a city that's not built with human hands. We are headed for the same eternal destination. And we are not called to make that migration on our own. We're called to do it as a group. We're called to do it as a caravan. We are to rely on each other for the support we need to complete the journey. And we need to realize that those lessons teach us what effective teamwork and community look like. We, as Christ followers, are better together. We can make it further in our spiritual lives because of the mutual support of one another than if we tried to do it alone. We need to keep an eye out for the members of our community who are falling behind who are falling out of formation because they're spiritually discouraged or they're going through a tough time. And we need to make sure that we come alongside them and support them and make sure that nobody is left behind in their spiritual journey. We need to constantly encourage and spur one another on in our fight with sin, our love for Christ, and our utilization of our spiritual gifts. We need to be each other's biggest supporters and encouragers. The Christian life is best lived together. We need one another. We are called to be a community of Christ followers or to say it as our big idea would tonight, you cannot have Christianity without community. You cannot have Christianity without community. Just as a goose is never going to make it to Florida without the rest of their flock, a Christ follower is never going to make it to the end of their life faithfully following Christ if they try to go it alone. And you know that flies in the face of an increasingly common belief that we hear within Christian circles. It's the idea that I can be a Christian without prioritizing Christian community in my life. Maybe you've heard a friend express it and it sounds like this. My faith is personal and it's a private matter between me and God. I don't want or need other people prodding around in my personal life and my spiritual walk. Maybe it sounds like this. You know, I'm just not comfortable being transparent with other people about my sin struggles. I don't like opening up, and I can handle my issues on my own. I don't need accountability. I don't need a, a mentorship. I've got this. I'm fine. Or life groups are great for some people, but they just don't, they don't, they don't jive for me. I don't need a life group. I'm far more fed doing things on my own. Or it doesn't really matter if my closest friends are Christians or not. My friends don't really rub off on me. Besides, it's hard to find good Christian friends anyway, so why bother? Or, you know, I really like Jesus, but man, the church, I don't like that at all. It's messy, it's ugly, it's difficult, and I'd much rather find my own way to relate to God. I don't, I don't need a church community. While those mindsets are increasingly common in the world that we live in, Scripture's clear. There's no such thing as Christianity apart from community. We are better together. We need each other. And tonight's passage really exemplifies that as we conclude the book of Colossians. So I'm going to read Colossians 4, verses 7 through 17, and then we'll unpack three principles of what good uh, Christian community requires and what that's going to look like in our lives. So let's go ahead and read this passage. Tychicus will tell you about all of my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when the letter of the church of the Laodiceans and see that, oh wait, and when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Yes, I did rehearse those names a few times to get those right. Now, when you're reading through that passage, you're probably looking up at me and thinking, and how did you get community out of that, right? Right? When we were reading through this, at first it doesn't really jump out. And I promise it's there. There's some great lessons in these verses. We just have to be patient and mind them out. I know when we get to the greetings and the conclusions of Paul's letter, sometimes we kind of treat that like flyover country. It's like at the end of a podcast where we stick, stick it on a double speed and just kind of breeze through as quickly as possible because it's really boring and we don't see the relevancy, right? Like these are a lot of names that we don't know. This is cultural that we don't understand. And a lot of the times we think, ah, this doesn't really apply to my life. But scripture is serious when it says all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and teaching, and righteousness. And this passage has a lot of gems for us tonight. So just be patient as we flush this out. At the end of this letter, Paul is identifying some of his closest companions. He's giving us an insider look at his circle of companions and influences within his life. And Paul is really showing us that life with Jesus is best done together. And that's what this passage is exemplifying. So with that in mind, let's consider these three principles for us as we endeavor to build authentic Christian community. So verses 7 through 9 give us our first principle. If we are going to experience true Christianity, true Christian community, then we need to first cultivate camaraderie. We need to cultivate camaraderie within our church community. Notice the camaraderie we see in these verses. Paul knows that the Colossian church genuinely desires to stay up to date on his life, on his ministry, on how he's doing, even though this was a long-distance friendship and relationship. And Paul had never, he wasn't the one who even planted the church at Colossae, and yet these believers have a deep desire to stay connected and to uh, prioritize that friendship. Paul is sending Tychicus on a long journey with the express purpose of giving them an update on their past mission work, on their travel journeys, and on Paul's present condition in prison. The Colossian church longed to know how their friend was doing so that they could better pray for him, support him, and minister to his needs. They wanted to know everything that had taken place since Paul's last communication with them. And there was obviously a sense of affection and intimacy that Paul is writing to these believers at the church that they had with one another, and that's not unique to this letter. As you read through the letters of Paul, the introductions and conclusions oftentimes show us that there was a a deep mutual love between the brothers and sisters in Christ. They weren't just uh, acquaintances. They weren't just business partners. To quote Ron Swanson, they weren't just workplace proximity associates, right? They were close friends. They had a spiritual camaraderie. So what is camaraderie exactly? Well, one definition puts it this way, and I think it's a good one. It's a spirit of good friendship and loyalty among members of a group. It's a spirit of good friendship and loyalty among members of a group. Here's why that's important. You can be part of a community but not experience camaraderie. There is an important distinction between those two concepts. Let me illustrate it this way. And if you attend either one of these and I offend you, I apologize. Think of the difference between having a gym membership at Planet Fitness and having a gym membership at a CrossFit facility. Okay, now think about this. Both have hundreds of members. Both have a membership fee. Both have the stated goal of physical fitness. But you have two very different models. Think of the Planet Fitness model. It's built around the idea of personal convenience. Work out on your time schedule, at your commitment level, at your pace. It's designed to be individualized. Most everyone there is there to work out alone. No one's gonna text you, no one's gonna reach out to you if you didn't show up to work out one day. No one even knows you well enough to realize if you were missing. Most everyone there is doing their own workout routine on their own equipment with their earbuds in and their own little world with a sign stapled across their face that says, don't talk to me, right? Like that, that's just how it is at the gym a lot of the times. You're not usually gonna make great companions at the gym if you're going to Planet Fitness. It's a facility where you can feel totally anonymous and alone even though you're in a crowded room. Now compare that with the CrossFit facility model. CrossFit facilities are notorious for almost like the the cult-like community that they have within their members. Fitness is a group journey that you pursue as a team. Instead of the individualized approach, everything has a relational flair to it. You work out in groups. You have a fitness coach who's championing you and cheering you on to push towards your goals. You have built-in accountability. Chances are if you miss for a week or two, people in your class are going to text you and say, hey, where have you been? What's going on? You celebrate wins and accomplish goals together as a team. They're not just members of the community. They have a shared camaraderie as well. There's a loyalty and a friendship among the members. Now, both are gym communities, right? Both have a lot of members, but there's a big difference in the interaction of those members and their experience of their fitness journey altogether. So here's my question. Which model more closely reflects... How Christians view their church community. What do you guys think? Which model more closely reflects how a lot of Christians view church community? Sadly, I think a lot of Christians have the Planet Fitness model when it comes to their spiritual growth and their relationship with the, with the church. They want the convenient and individualized model. A lot of Christians want the church model where they have a church membership badge that they get to scan in at their personal convenience. They don't want to be pushed too hard. They want to go at their own pace. They don't really want anyone to notice if they aren't there on a Sunday morning. They want to be the anonymous head among the masses that's going under the radar. Accountability is a curse word and an unwelcomed intrusion into our spiritual routines. On Sunday mornings, they're only interested in getting a quick spiritual pump in for the week. They aren't really interested in getting to know names or having those small talk conversations afterwards or joining a life group, may it never be, or building camaraderie with the church people. They want an individualized spiritual fitness journey that's built on their terms. They want to be consumers of the church rather than contributors. They care more about personal growth than the growth of the team. They prioritize spiritual convenience over spiritual community. And you know, the model that I just described, it's really an anomaly within the American church. If you travel to most other places in the world, you will not see that model. Strangely enough, if you open up the pages of scripture, you're not going to see that model either. It's not a biblical model. It's a model that's really just reflecting our American individualized culture. We have so individualized and privatized our faith that we have lost one of the main pillars of what it means to be a Christian in the New Testament church. We are members of the same body. We are siblings of the same spiritual family. We are members of the same team. And the reality is, we can do none of those things alone. The New Testament is filled with one another's. You can't one another if you're by yourself. That's just the reality of it. But so many Christians want Christianity without community, they have what sometimes I call the Sam's Club church mentality where I show my membership badge, I want to go around to get my little, you know, my little uh, samples of all the different ministries, and I pick the ministry I want off the shelf, and then I, I check out, and I don't go back for another month until I, I, need my, I need to pick stuff off the shelf again. Rather than seeing myself as a contributing member, I'm a consumer, and the church is a product that I want. We need deeper community in that. We need to cultivate camaraderie. But to cultivate genuine camaraderie in our community, it's going to take at least three things, probably a thousand more, but these were three that came into my mind today. It's going to take initiative, interest, and investment. First, it's going to take initiative. You know, I think there's a lot of Christ followers who genuinely want more camaraderie and community, but they're waiting for everyone else to take the initiative. (laughs) They're thinking, man, I want community. Why won't people reach out to me? rather than thinking, who's the person that I can reach out to and start creating my own community? We think, ah, oh man, wouldn't this be great? Community, Christian community is so hard to find, but then no one takes the initiative to break the ice and get to know the other person. Rather than waiting for it to come to us, we have to be willing to go and to cultivate our own community. So it takes initiative. Second, though, it takes interest. It takes interest. And this one's really convicting. This one's really convicting. We live in a culture where people have very little interest in learning about other people. A conversation is, I listen enough politely so that you'll be quiet and then I can talk because I just want to talk to people. If we want authentic camaraderie and community, it has to mean that we genuinely have an interest in getting to know other people. We think, man, like, I don't know you and I want to. I want to know your passions. I want to know what your struggles are. I want to know what, what, you, what you enjoy. I, I want to get to know you. But we live in a world, and even a Christian world, where really communication is just like, I talk about myself, and like that's what I want, and then you talk, and then I tune out, and then I click back in when I get to talk about myself a little bit more. So it takes genuine interest to say, okay, I don't want to talk about me. I want to hear about you. But that third thing it takes is intentionality. It takes intentionality. The reality is, uh, it can be a difficult process building that camaraderie. It takes time. It takes investment. It takes that devotion. I even think about some of our young adult friends who, you know, have moved away. Have, have they gone out of sight and out of mind because they're in a different city now? How can we be intentional to keep those bonds strengthened? And in the world that we live in today with so much communication options and so many ways to stay involved and intentional with relationships, for some reason it just seems like there's more static that's killing relationships rather than fostering them. But it takes investment. So we see from this passage that if we're going to experience true Christian community, we need to cultivate camaraderie. But in the next section of this passage, Paul shows us That to experience true Christian community, we also need to make sure that we're keeping good company. That's our second principle. Keep good company. The people we decide to surround ourselves with on a daily basis is massively important. It's a little cliche, but it's true. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You've probably heard that, but it is so true. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. For better or worse we are always becoming more like the people we surround ourselves with. This is a humorous example, but there was a a guy that I, I had in my high school ministry a few years ago when I was out in California. He's in college now, and he goes to seminary in Kentucky. He grew up in Southern California, and he was a total California South Orange County surfer bro. If you talk to him, he had the, yeah, like the lingo man and like that. Just that is the way he talked. He was a total California bro. He moved to Kentucky about a year and a half ago. I was talking to him. We've mostly texted. I was talking to him on the phone the other day, and I literally had to mute my microphone because I was, I was chuckling because he, like, he sounds like a hillbilly from Kentucky now. We're talking on the phone. He's like, yeah, I was down there at FedEx the other day. I'm like, what happened to you? Like, it's, it sounded like I was talking to my brother, you know? And I was thinking like, man, what? what? And, and you know what? I, I don't think this young guy moved to Kentucky and said, man, I really want to sound like I'm from Kentucky, because that's the accent that everyone just envies over. I want to sound like I'm from Kentucky, right? No, I, I don't think that's what happened. I think he moved to Kentucky. And he's around a lot of people from Kentucky that talk like they're from Kentucky. And guess what happened? Slowly but surely, as he was immersed in that culture, he started to pick up the vocabulary, the accent, the intuition. He started to sound like he was from Kentucky. Okay, that's a humorous example, but it shows the truth. Whatever we immerse ourselves in, we're going to start sounding like. We're going to pick up the vocabulary. We're going to pick up the the priorities, the values that we surround ourselves with. Because of that, don't believe the popular lie that I can be a growing Christian who has no close Christian friends. If all of my closest relationships and friendships are with people who don't have a shared goal and value system and worldview, how can I expect to be growing in my love and devotion to Christ? In this passage, we see a list of some of Paul's closer friends. And his companions. And notice the unifying marker. They're godly men and women who want to grow their walk with Christ. Now this is a balancing piece to last week's sermon. Last week we learned we're not to retreat from culture. We're not to wall ourselves off in holy huddles. We can't retreat and isolate from the world that we live in. However, we need to realize that the closest sphere in our lives, of the people that get to speak truth and form our values and our worldview and our thinking. Those need to be Christ followers who are going to help us pursue Christ likeness. There's a difference between engaging with culture and yoking up with our culture. I mean, just think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a passage that's oftentimes just reserved for dating or for marriages, but it's not a dating passage in its context. It's really not. It's talking about cultural engagement. And Paul writes this, "'Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols?' Paul is saying that we need to prioritize relationships in our lives that are like-minded and going to push us to love Jesus more. We need to have friendships and community in our life that keeps us on mission rather than trying to pull us off mission. So let's take a closer look at Paul's list and see the types of people that he surrounds himself with. Now, I know this is just a long list of names, but it's really cool. Because as Paul shows us the type of company that he surrounds himself with, in this list, each of these characters teach us an important lesson of how to pursue a Christ-centered life. They each give us a different model of spiritual maturity that we can learn from and glean from. And Paul is saying, I'm learning from these dear brothers and sisters in my spiritual life. And here's some of the lessons that Paul probably learned from his friends. The first one is Tychicus. How many of you have ever heard of Tychicus before? I see two hands. Okay, so he didn't make the Hall of Fame, right, in, in the New Testament. He's probably not the, the one that, we, you know, the young kids were dreaming of growing up to be Tychicus, right? That, that's not a common one. However, believe it or not, he's, he's all throughout the New Testament. In Acts 20, verse 4 and uh, We learn that Tychicus was traveling with Paul on a long journey from Macedonia to Jerusalem. This long, arduous journey would have taken him far away from his friends, his home, his loved ones. In Ephesians six twenty one, Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus to be kind of a fill-in church leader. In Titus three twelve, he's sent to Crete to fill in while Titus is away. In 2 Timothy four twelve, Paul sends uh, him back once again to Ephesus to be another fill-in church leader. If you've noticed, he's all around the world. Paul is literally dispatching him left and right, go to Ephesus, go to Crete, go here, go there, and he is happily throwing his life down saying, okay, wherever you'll send me, I will go, Paul. He exemplifies an adipat heart. That's something I once heard a pastor say. Adipat means any time, any place, anything. He lived adipat. He said, for the gospel, anytime, anyplace, anything, I'll go. Tychicus shows us what it looks like to live all in for the gospel. What are the ways that we need to be more adipat in our spiritual walks? But then we see Onesimus next. Maybe you've heard of Onesimus. He gets a little more ink in scripture. There's an entire book that's kind of written about him, the book of Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave from a church member named Philemon. Onesimus met Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome, and Paul becomes his spiritual father, and Onesimus becomes a Christ follower and a disciple of Christ. Now, in this letter, we see that Onesimus is returning back to the very place that he ran away. He's returning back to his master. He's returning back to the site of something that could get him in a whole lot of trouble if charges were to be pressed. Onesimus teaches us what it looks like to accept responsibility for our failures as Christ followers we don't run away from things that are difficult or hard we're going to fail we're going to make mistakes but when we do we need to learn from Onesimus and say part of being a Christ follower means confronting my mistakes head-on and accepting responsibility for my actions so how do we need to be more courageous like Onesimus up next we see Aristarchus Aristarchus. In Acts 20, uh, 27 2, we see that Aristarchus goes on Paul with his horrific boat ride over to Rome. This is like the worst boat ride you can ever imagine. They get stuck in the storm of the century. They can't get to port. Finally, the ship is wrecked and they all drift on driftwood to the island and they barely survive. Everybody does, but they barely survive. And, and he volunteered to be on the ship with Paul. Not only that, in this passage we learn that Aristarchus volunteered to be in a Roman prison so Paul wouldn't be alone. He didn't have to be there. Aristarchus said, Paul is in prison and I want to make sure he's being taken care of so I surrender my freedom to be a prisoner in a terrible Roman prison to be there for him and to be a faithful friend and support him emotionally and relationally. Aristarchus shows us the importance of showing sympathy to our brothers and sisters in need. Aristarchus was willing to surrender his freedom to help Paul. What are the inconveniences that we aren't even willing to surrender to help a friend who needs some help? So that's a lesson we learn from Aristarchus. Then think about Mark. Think about Mark. Paul says Mark's coming your way and be ready to receive him. Do you know which Mark that is? That's John Mark. John Mark and Paul don't have the greatest history. They had a little bit of a beef, right? So much of a beef that it broke up the dynamic duo of the missions uh, chapters in the book of Acts. John Mark ditches Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He says, this is too hard. This is tough. I'm out of here. I'm going back home. Second missionary journey comes around. Barnabas says, hey, I want to bring my nephew John Mark again. And Paul says, are you crazy? This guy ditched us once. He's a loser. We're not letting him back on. you got to be A-game of." travel with Paul no way get out of here and they disagreed so severely that they split up and took different trips and you would have thought that Paul and Mark would have never buried the hatchet Paul's a lot of things I don't know if I imagine him to be the quickest to reconcile when he feels really offended but later on we see now he's sending I'm saying Mark to you and not only that at the end of second Timothy Paul asks for Mark to be sent to him because he says he is profitable for me i need mark mark teaches us a cool lesson he's a character that shows us that we need to refuse to let our past mistakes limit our faithful our future faithfulness we need to refuse to let our past mistakes limit our our future faithfulness what guilt or shame are you allowing to hold you back from doing big things for god then we see justice justice Colossians 4.11 tells us that he was one of the only men of the circumcision along with his fellow workers for the kingdom of God and they've been a comfort to Paul. Paul's essentially saying there, there's not a lot of Christians who are Jews at this point. They've turned their back on Christ, they've turned their back on Paul. And Justice is a Jew. He's one of the few Jews who's remaining faithful to the gospel. And I think Justice teaches us the important principle that we need to stay committed to our faith in the the face of temptation to conform. There was a lot of pressure for him to turn his back on Jesus and to go back to embracing the Jewish lifestyle. And Paul says, justice is one of the few who said, no, I will not be moved. No matter what comes my way, I will faithfully follow Christ. Have you guys ever been tempted to conform? You guys ever been tempted to compromise what you believe to fit in with your culture? Justice is an example of what it looks like stand faithfully for our beliefs. Then we see Epaphras. We see Epaphras. Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras models what true friendship is all about. That word always struggling is this idea that Epaphras is throwing himself down in a posture of prayer, beseeching for God to help them grow in their spiritual life. Epaphras is a prayer warrior. He says, Epaphras is on your team and he's fueling your spiritual advance because he's putting prayer power behind the sails of your spiritual life. Epaphras shows us that we need to increase our concern for others and decrease our concern for ourselves. But then we see Luke. We see Luke, Who is I mean, we probably know Luke. He gets once again a little more ink in scripture. Luke authored uh, a quarter of the New Testament, he wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. But we know that he sacrificed a lucrative practice to follow Paul all around the known world, to be imprisoned with Paul, to serve Paul, to help Paul, to be a historian. Luke leveraged his talents, not for personal gain, but for the gain of the kingdom. And that's the lesson we learn from Luke. Use your talents for the work of the kingdom would been really easy for a guy like Luke with a huge intellect to use that for personal fame and personal profit but Luke instead said how can i use these talents to spread the gospel as i look across here i see a lot of talent i do we have a talented young adults group we've got a lot of smarts out there we've got a lot of people with great work habits we've got a lot of talent in a variety of creative areas And Luke's legacy asks us to say, what am I going to do with my talent? Am I going to do this all for personal gain? Am I going to champion the kingdom of Andrew? Or am I going to try to build and expand the kingdom of Christ? But then we have Demas, and Demas takes a downturn. Does anyone know Demas' story? Demas is mentioned a few times in scripture, but the last time we see him is in 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul says this. For Demas, who was in love with this present world, deserted me and went to Thessalonica. Demas was a guy who looked like he had it all together spiritually. He knew all the Christian answers. He checked all the right boxes. He followed Paul. He gave to the ministry. He had church leadership training. Demas was a guy who looked exteriorly like an A-plus Christian. And later on, Paul says, yeah, he, he deserted me and went back to Thessalonica because He wasn't in love with Jesus. He still loved the world. Demas warns us the danger, warns us about the dangers of hypocrisy. The dangers of hypocrisy. You can look really good on the outside, but be a whitewashed tomb on the inside. And Paul says, beware. Be aware. Spiritual hypocrisy will not get you to completion in your spiritual life. And then we see Nympha. Nympha is our, our final gal. Nympha was a wealthy woman, but she used her house to be a house church, which was not a small undertaking. She basically said, my house is, it's kind of the inn of the city. People can come in, we're gonna have worship here. We're gonna use all of the facilities that God has given me as a great resource for hospitality. Nympha shows us to view all of our stuff as God's stuff. When I was in California, there were families that would host Uh, life groups for 40 to 50 high schoolers in their homes every Wednesday night. And if you've ever been with high schoolers and they would have like dinners and meals, they are disgusting and they're gonna leave your house a mess, right? And there were couples that did that every Wednesday night. And it was such a testimony to me that here they've got these nice houses, these big houses, and they say, it doesn't matter, our house is used for ministry. How can we make sure to use our things for Christ's kingdom? Each and every one of Paul's companions demonstrated a different facet of godly living. It's so important for us to realize that life with Jesus is best done together because we can learn from each other's experiences, victories, gifts, strengths, and even shortcomings and failures. Who I surround myself with will inevitably shape the person I'm becoming So I want to surround myself with people who have shared spiritual goals, who are going to champion my walk with Christ and push me to love Christ more. And that brings us to our third and final principle that we're going to hit on just very briefly. Good company is going to provide real accountability. We have to learn to value authentic accountability. Look at verse 17 again. Paul says uh, one interesting thing here. He closes out and says to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that I have received, uh, that you have received in the Lord. He's basically saying to this young man in front of the whole church, hey, do your job and you can do this. Be the man that God's called you to be. Paul is giving him a healthy dose of accountability and saying to the church, this is a young man who's gifted, he's in spiritual leadership, but he needs help to stay on the right path, as all of us do. We need the accountability of our brothers and sisters in Christ to finish our lives and hear the Lord say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. I think of Hebrews 10 24 and 25 that says let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together we need to stir one another up we need to hold each other accountable but what is authentic accountability what is that well it's helping another person stand firm in their commitment and their character it's pulling each other up when we feel like falling down It's pointing our eyes back to Jesus when we've lost focus. It's helping a friend hold high the shield of faith when their arm is weary and quivering from a long and arduous battle. It's helping each other stand firm in our walk with the Lord. We need authentic accountability in our lives. But to receive accountability, we need three things we need vulnerability, we need humility, and we need trust. I'm not going to flush those out. You can figure those out for yourself. You can talk about it in your group, but we need vulnerability. We need humility, and we need trust. And here's the other side of it. To offer authentic accountability, we need to show accountability with grace, love, and faithfulness. We need people who are championing us and supporting us and helping us not fall off of the right path. We need authentic accountability. So that's this passage. We can't have Christianity without community and have real community. We have to value camaraderie. We have to learn from each other's examples and keep the right company. And we have to value authentic accountability. We are in this together. So let's make sure we're doing life together. Let me close this in a word of prayer and we can break for small groups. Father, We are so grateful that there are so many amazing lessons, even in a passage of scripture that, when we first read through it, might think this doesn't apply to us. But Father, your word is living and active, and sharper than than any two-edged sword, and it can pierce to the deepest parts of us and reveal the many ways that we are falling short in our spiritual walk. But Father, we know uh, that we can rely on one another. We have such an amazing community here at Young Adults. We are brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered around a similar cause of wanting to live for you and for your glory. And I just pray that you help all of us value community in our lives. Allow us to foster camaraderie. Allow us to hold each other accountable and allow us to pursue Christ's likeness together. We pray for great small groups now. Thank you for the honor it has been to get to study through the book of Colossians this fall. We expect that lives are gonna continue to be changed by the power of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.